Judges chapter 2, starting at verse 10. The Bible says this, After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers. What generation are they talking about? They're talking about a generation where Joshua was alive. And the Bible says earlier in this chapter that even some of the elders that outlived Joshua and also those men and women who had seen the great works that God had done, bringing them from the wilderness into the land that he had promised to give them, after that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the peoples around them. They provoked the Lord to anger because they forsook Him and served Baal and the Ashtoreths. Baal was merely a male Canaanite god, an idol. The Ashtoreths were, were the female deity, uh, the false gods of the Canaanites. And these are now the gods that they're turning to and worshiping. The Bible says in verse 14, In his anger against Israel, the Lord handed them over to, the, to raiders who plundered them. He sold them to their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet they would not listen to the judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. Unlike their fathers, they quickly turned from the way in which their fathers had walked the way of obedience to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when the judge died, the people returned to ways even more corrupt than those of their fathers following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. What we just read is essentially somewhat of an introduction to what is about to happen throughout the entire book of Judges. You read this chapter and it's an overview of as you read through this entire book, the cycle that you will see happening. The people of Israel did their own thing. They went their own way. They followed after the gods of the Canaanites that were around them. As a result of that, they found that they were, anytime they went out to war, they were beaten hands down. They were just taken into uh, some kind of a captivity or they were held under an oppressive nation that was able to overcome them. And as a result of that, in many cases, they would starve. They would, they would, uh, they would be subject to these nations and find that they were just 
in, in a terrible place. And then the Bible says that they would cry out in their, their distress. And the Lord would send one person, send a judge. And under that judge would bring deliverance. We read about those judges and some of them you only read small amounts. You read about Othniel. You read about uh, Gideon. You read about Samson, about Deborah. You read about Barak and others who were judges in the nation of Israel. And under those judges, they brought deliverance. But then when the judge died, the people went right back into the sin. But the Bible says they didn't go back into the same sin. They found ways of sinning in greater ways. They found ways of piling sin on top of sin. They did more to anger God the next time around and and bring about God's anger. That was the kind, and this is what you see all through the entire book of Judges. So why am I preaching this message today? There is a phrase at the very beginning of verse 10 that we read, and I want to just quickly read it again, and it is this. After that whole generation had been gathered to their fathers, listen to this, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. It's hard to believe that some of the things that we have seen in the news over the last little while and read about and even some of the issues that we're facing uh, during this time and, and, and at this time of, of history that we would be facing. It's hard to believe that in our country we have a decreasing amount of people who actually believe that they should go to church, that they should uh, somehow believe in God, that we have on the rise individuals who think that they can just live however they want. It's, it's an amazing thing that we live in a time where some of the heroes of our society are now atheists. They are individuals who, who uh, preach a message of hopelessness, preach a message of, of absolute just uh, unbelievably, uh, you, you, you listen to what they say and it's unbelievable that they would have this message of hopelessness to a world and yet people applaud them. I was shocked as I, I listened. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a fan of those who uh, have brains greater than mine. Uh, and there's this one, one brother who has a ministry. His name is Dr. William Lane Craig. He's an academic, but he is a believer. He is a Christian and he often debates atheists and, and evolutionists and all kinds of things. And he, there was this one particular uh, event that he went to in Mexico, was invited just outside of Mexico City that was sponsored, I believe, by a particular university in Mexico. And he was invited as one of three panelists on the side of the agreeing that the universe has a purpose. And on the other side, there were three panelists that agreed that the universe does not have a purpose. And it's an amazing thing. He said he's, he, there was this one atheistic panelist who absolutely hates Christianity, anything having to do with religion. He is just so against it. His name is Richard Dawkins. And he, he was able to give a lecture. And he said, I was shocked 
that when he stood up and he spewed this venom that he had toward religion and toward Christianity and toward many things that they know uh, in their culture, in Mexican culture, as, as their religion, he said he was shocked to see that 40% of the students, after this man got done talking, stood up and gave the man a standing ovation. It's an amazing thing that you can have people standing in, this is the culture that we're living in, that they, they elevate as heroes of the faith, those who will say that the universe has no purpose, that the world has no purpose, and therefore you have no purpose whatsoever. It's an incredible thing that we are living in a society that elevates these individuals as heroes. And in part, the reason is because of this one phrase that we read about at the end of verse 10, that there is a generation that has arisen that does not know the Lord nor the works that He has done. We live in a time where we have young people who are more disinterested in church than ever before. And part of the reason is simply because the church has in, in some ways failed. We have failed as individuals to show them that God is the most important thing. That God is more powerful than, than your words. God is more powerful than anything that you could ever try to accomplish in this life. God is able to help you. We have as a church in many ways failed to show them. The Bible says here that they, and I, I don't want to assume that it was Joshua's failure or that prior generation's failure, but I can't help but think if somewhere along the way, you remember when the people of Israel went across the Jordan River? And the Bible says that God told them, I want you to get one man from, tw uh, from each tribe of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, and I want you to take those men and I want them to go down into the Jordan River and to find a boulder to find a rock, and I want you to make a memorial. And I want you to take those rocks and set them one on top of the other, 12 stones from the 12 tribes of Israel, and it's going to be for a purpose. That purpose is that when, when your children pass by, they look at the stones and they say, what's that for? Why is that there? And you'll be able to tell them it will serve as a more memorial of what God has done for the people of Israel. And when you tell them, then they'll know and they'll understand the great works of God. I don't know if all of a sudden after a while some of the elders began to die off and nobody went by the memorial anymore. Or maybe the story got convoluted. Maybe somehow they... You know, they, they couldn't quite relate the story the way that it was told and the way it was. I don't know what it was. I don't know what, ex what the excuse was. All we know is now here we are, a generation removed from the mighty Joshua and all of those who went into the land to take and, and possession of what God had given to them. And we've now got a generation that doesn't know God. Brothers and sisters, we're living in a nation that doesn't know God. I was shocked back in the 90s, early 90s, when I was uh, out in Newport one day, Rhode Island, and just down by, uh, there was an area of Newport, Rhode Island that we used to go to on occasion, and uh, where the mansion, there are these incredible mansions there. It's just such a beautiful, beautiful place. And it's, it's along what's called the Cliff Walk, I believe. And we were walking down there. We saw this little boy one day, and he, he was yelling to somebody, and they realized that there were some of us there. And, 
and realized that maybe his voice was a little too loud. And he apologized. We said, that's all right. Began to talk to him. He was 10 years old. Began to talk to this 10-year-old boy in New England. The, the, the haven of the, the you know, early, early revival under Jonathan Edwards back in the 1700s. And now here it is, is this little boy, as we began to talk to him, we, you know, we began to, to ask him if he knew who Jesus was. And he said, no, I, I don't know who Jesus is. We said, well, do you know who the Easter Bunny is? Oh, yeah, I know who the Easter Bunny is. Do you know who Santa is? Yeah, I know, I know Santa, yeah. But do you know who Jesus is? Do you know about Jesus? No, I've never heard of Jesus. Ten years old in the United States of America, in good old New England. He didn't know who Jesus was. This was back in the 90s. How much further removed under the current way of thinking are we now? There is a generation, brothers and sisters, who does not know God. What I'm talking about is this. I'm talking about a relationship, a genuine move of God where they will come and they will reach out to God for themselves rather than, you know, being dragged to church by grandma, being dragged to church by mom or dad or somebody else saying, you better go or else this is what's going to happen. I remember those days. I was a preacher's kid. I had no choice. I had to be there. I was dragged to church, I know, but there came a point where as a young person, not an older person, no, I haven't, hey, I didn't come to Jesus, you know, three weeks ago, but as a young person, I realized I've got to have Jesus for myself because the, the message of hopelessness that is being spread in our world does absolutely nothing for anybody, including those who currently find themselves in a hopeless condition. You can listen to all the nonsense you want and it's not going to change the fact that Jesus came to bring hope to a lost and a dying world. The message is still true. The message is still the same. And as Paul says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God to salvation. A lot of times we kind of dance around the issue because we don't want to mention Jesus. He's too, he's too offensive. You know, I want to be a Christian, Lord, but I want to be enough of a Christian to go to heaven, but not enough that I have to talk about you. I get a little worried about that. We get concerned about that because if we're not willing to lift him up, he said, if you're not willing, if you're ashamed of me before men, I'll be ashamed of you before my father. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a generation that is so lost and needs to know Jesus Christ, needs to know the power of Jesus and what he's able to do to change a life. There are those who would say our country is founded on Christian principles. I believe that may be true. That our country is founded on Christian principles, but our country is far from Christian. We act, we, we use the label when the time is right, and we unload it when the time is right. If you know what I mean. We'll, we'll, we'll profess that, listen, oh, we, we, we love Christmas. Yes, we love it. Don't take Christ out of Christmas. But, you know, when all of a sudden on your job you're getting grilled about what you did Sunday morning, <laughs> oh, well, you know, we had a meeting, and uh, well, what was the meeting for? Well, you know, we go to church. You go to church? Really? You? 
All of a sudden now it becomes this interrogation that we want to back away from that we're afraid of. Brothers and sisters, we are living in a society that is full of hopelessness. If we cannot profess the hope of Jesus Christ, what's going to happen to your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, the people around you? What's going to happen to them? i got to tell you today that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins, and He died on the cross for their sins. They just don't know it yet. They don't know how to break out of the life that they're in, the hopelessness that they're in. You want to ask your coworker every now and then why it is they can't remember what they did last week? because they don't want to remember what they did last weekend. We live in that kind of society. We live in a hopeless generation. We live in a time where the people of Israel, as it, is, as it was for the people of Israel, there were people who were ignorant. They didn't know what the right thing to do was. They didn't know how to act. Now, the people of Israel, I believe, had the law still close by. They could have gone to it, but they chose not to. One of the reasons why we as Christians don't read the Bible enough is because I believe there is a part of us on the inside that's afraid of what we're going to read. We're afraid of what we're going to be confronted with. Because every now and then the Holy Spirit is going to use the Word of God to come to you and to say, look at what that says. Look at what's going on in your life. What do you think you need to do? Oh, God, please don't go there. But what do you think you need to do? I know I need to repent. I know I need to get rid of that. I know I need to unload those things that I've been involved in. I know I need to do that. And so you know what we do? We don't, we don't like that kind of confrontation, right? We just leave the Bible closed. Just don't go to it. Don't have to deal with it. But the longer you do that, the longer you don't go to the Word of God and look at what it says and let the Holy Spirit confront you, the more you will be in ignorance and you will live as this current generation lives, as if God doesn't exist. They lived in ignorance. There was the evil influence of those that were around them. They lived with that evil influence beside them. And yet they didn't eliminate it. They didn't say that's not for us. They began to embrace it. The Bible says they worshiped the Baals and the Ashtoreths. Well, we don't, we don't bow down to these, you know, kinds of idols like what they did in this generation. We don't do that. We just bow to what society is saying. We just go ahead and say, let's just, you know, we're going to play church a little bit. We're going to go to church, but we, we're really in the end, we're not going to stand for what's right. We're just going to have the let society kind of dictate the way we ought to go, and then we're just going to give into it. We bow to materialism. We bow to what the world is saying we ought to live. It's funny. This this I don't know. I can't remember what channel it's on. This show called Storage Wars. anybody ever, anybody ever seen that? Yep, you have, haven't you? Uh, but you know what strikes me about that is it's junk that's, you know, obviously it's been abandoned, but maybe it's also from somebody who has died. And you open up, you know, 
They open up this, this thing. They have to bid on. They can't go inside. They can't open any boxes to see what's there. They have to just kind of look, see what's in there. And then there's an auction. And they bid. And whoever the highest bidder is, they get the contents of this particular storage locker, this storage unit. And it's, it's sort of, it's comical in its own way. And, but what strikes me about it is you have this stuff that people have pursued. They've gone after. It's theirs. It belonged to them. And they just, you, know, you had to get all this stuff. You got to accumulate the stuff. But now they're gone, wherever they are. If they didn't, they just abandoned it, they're gone. Or they're, they're dead. They didn't take it with them. They didn't take any of the contents of that stuff. Somebody is going in and they're bidding on their stuff and trying to make a little money off the contents of these storage units. Now they didn't take it with them. They, they worshipped materialism. They went after all kinds of stuff. I was shocked. The guy who always says, yep, when he wants to bid, he got the boxes and boxes of books. $15,000 worth of books. I don't know how many thousands he paid for it, but it was much less. He made a pile of money on books. I'm curious if the person who left it behind ever read them. We're going to get more books. I got to have the book. Oh, that's a good book. I got to get it. It sits on the shelf your entire life. You don't touch it. You don't read it. You don't know how to do anything. We go after things that don't change us. We go after materialism that has nothing to do. When you're dead, you're not going to take it with you. Brothers and sisters, in our society, we worship the God of materialism. We live in this generation that so desperately needs to know the love of Christ. We have a generation that has been lost. There is another gen part of that generation. One of the characteristics of that particular generation was their immobility. That is, that they refused to listen to what the judges said. That's what verse 17 tells us. They refused to listen to what the judges had to say. Now, God brought them out of whatever oppression they were in because of the judge, because the judge turned their hearts to the Lord. They obeyed God. They followed God. But really, the people, there was no real depth of change. They cried out because who wants to be oppressed? Who wants to be down? Who wants to have, you know, that, that weight of oppression from other people under us? But brothers and sisters... I want you to know that what the people did at that time is they refused to listen to those who delivered the word. This is where we have to be extremely careful. That when we come into church, whoever you hear preaching, whether me or anybody else or wherever you might hear the word preached, that we can toss it aside and say, I, I don't want to have to deal with that right now. We can just set it aside and say, I, that's not for me. I refuse to listen, and maybe it is for you. Maybe the Holy Spirit is gently prodding you and saying, you need to listen to what the Word of God has to say for your life in this moment. You need to hear what God is saying, but you reject it. You refuse to listen. You, you refuse and reject the Word of God and its authority. You reject the authority of the servant of God. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it. That's what the people of Israel were doing. They were rejecting and refusing to listen to what was being said. And verse 19 lets us know that Israel reverted to a deeper lifestyle of sin. 
The danger in refusal is you will go deeper into sin. When you hear the word, you are accountable for what you hear. Say, oh, pastor, then you won't see me next time. Oh, no, don't, don't be that silly. We are accountable for what we hear. We're accountable for what we read. We read it in the Bible. We cannot look at it and say, I'm not accountable for that, Lord. You are accountable for what you hear. But the Bible lets us know that they heard it, they rejected it, they refused it, and as a result, they went further and deeper into sin because that's what you will do. When you reject the Word of God, you will go deeper into the life that you are living. This is the state of our country, brothers and sisters. We have rejected the Word of God, so we're going deeper into the mess of sin that we find ourselves as a society already in. And the question is, what are we as believers going to do about it? say, well, pastor, the answer obviously is what you've been talking about. It's the election. No, it's not. Oh, give me a break. I don't have any hope in either of the guys who are running for president. My hope isn't based on, on, a, on the Democratic Party or the Republican Party or an independent or a Tea Party or whatever kind of party these people want to have. My hope is in Jesus. My hope is based on Him and Him alone. The Word of God, brothers and sisters, will never ever pass away. We've got to begin to pray as never before. Somebody once said that it's because, well, you know, prayer was taken out of the schools back in the 60s. I don't believe that for a minute. It's because prayer has been taken out of the church. You can't even get Christians to pray. What do we think? That some teacher who doesn't know God, doesn't love God, is actually going to stand in front of a, a classroom and actually want to say something good about God and lead his class in prayer? Are we silly? The problem is, is that prayer doesn't happen in the church. And I'll, I'll even just go a little bit further. Prayer doesn't even happen in our own lives. As believers, we, we depend on Tuesday night. Come Tuesday. I want you to come Tuesday night. I, but I want you to be here Sunday morning. Well, you know what I want more than that? More than that, I want you to learn how to get alone with God wherever you might be. If you take a lunch break and you go out on your lunch break at work and you get out and you go alone, you say, I'm going to go shop. Well, go shop. Fine. But, you know, do what you got to do. But, but listen, you begin to call on the name of the Lord while you're out shopping. Go pray. We, we think that some, well, I just got to have a little me time. How about you have a little you and God time? I think things will begin to change a whole lot more in our society and in our generation. We, be, we begin to call upon God and cry out to the Lord as never before. We can't allow prayer to escape us. Don't think for a minute that prayer in the schools is going to be the answer for our generation. It will be when men and women who know how to call on God actually begin to do it. And if you don't like what I said, that's okay. God, brothers and sisters, has, no matter what our society is like, no matter what we as a generation are like, no matter where we stand as a generation, I want you to understand this and know this. This is the most important thing, that God has a divine interest in you. God has an interest in the society. There are some who will write it off and say God is no longer interested Wrong. If God were no longer interested in the society, he would have taken the church to be with him. He would have raptured the church and we would be with Jesus right now. 
if he was no longer interested in this world, if this world has the cup of iniquity is full, then, then at that point he's going to take his people home. But you know what? He hasn't. And so therefore, you and I can believe that God still has an interest in this society. He still has an interest in this generation. This generation is not lost. The question is, what does this generation, what does this interest look like? It's sparked by a number of things. First of all, it's sparked by his unmerited favor. There isn't anybody in this room who can say that we deserve the, the grace and the mercy of God. Not a one of you, including me. There isn't anybody who can stand here and say, I deserve it. I've been so good. I've just been such a great human being. Not one. Doesn't matter where you came from. Maybe you lived a completely sheltered life. You did nothing wrong. You maybe told one tiny little lie in your life and that's it. You deserve it. No, you don't. Because the Bible lets us know that we were all born into sin. We came into this world as sinners and we need the unmerited favor of God. Israel didn't deserve God's intervention. They did not deserve God to show up and to say, all right, I'm going to deliver you. Because why? Well, most of us would look at them and say, you got yourselves into it. You made your bed, you sleep in it. We've got all those phrases, right? You know, this is, this is what you did. You did that to yourself. Don't look at anybody else. Now you're going to have to pay the consequences. We've got all kinds of things to say to people to just let them know that they got themselves into it and they probably deserve what they're getting. We're so vindictive, aren't we? Thank God we're not God. Thank God you're not God. I, you know, we would just let them rot. You're in pain, good. That's, that's how we can, we can be. We can be that way. God wasn't that way. He looked at his people. He knew they got themselves into it. He knew they rejected his word. He knew they rejected and refused what the judges were saying. And yet he still had compassion on them. Brothers and sisters, I don't know about you, but we need to understand the love and the grace and the mercy of God for society. We look out in the world and we think we've just got a bunch of cantankerous people who are just going after the church and they're just going after me as a Christian. And God, you get them. Don't worry, God's going to get them. God, if they don't repent, God will get them. Say, well, I don't care if they repent. Well, shame on us because God does. God wants everyone to be saved. He desires that all should come to repentance and have everlasting life. You say, but you don't know how bad they were. You don't know what they did to me. doesn't matter what they did to you. They can repent. And find grace and mercy. That's what the people of Israel, brothers and sisters, the people of Israel, God looked at them and he said, I, I'm interested in you still. All through scripture, you go all the way into the book of Jeremiah when the people of Israel were literally being carted away into Babylon, Babylonian captivity, as God said, was going to happen. They're being carted away. God wasn't saying, that's it, I'm done with all of you. No, because he promised even through the prophet Jeremiah, guess what? A remnant, a small percentage, you're going to return. You're going to come back and I'm going to revive and I'm going to restore. Brothers and sisters, God 
God is a God of restoration. I believe the greatest hope for this country is not the election. It is revival. It is coming to a place where recognize that God is going to have the final say. And we're going to pray and say, God, you do the work in me. No matter what happens, no matter what goes on, no matter what laws are passed or not passed, God, I am going to serve you with all of my heart. We've got to pray for revival now more than ever before. God is calling to this nation. He is crying out to this nation. And we've got to reach out as believers and say, God, we can't be asleep. We can't allow ourselves to be so sleepy that we miss what you have to say that this generation, this generation of people, they need to know the love of Christ. They need to know the power of Christ. They need to know the deliverance of Christ. They need to know what he is able to do. His interest was proven when he allowed Israel to be handed over to the invaders. Say, what? He allowed them to be handed over to his invaders, proved his interest. You know why? Because it brought them to a place of of coming to a place of recognizing that they couldn't follow after the gods of the the world and, and, and bring about a change in their own lives. They had to come to this this place of repentance. They had to be brought low. And the only time you can repent is when you're brought low. It's the only time that we can repent. You can bring yourself low and repent, but sometimes we have to be brought low to repent. They had to be brought low. It shows that he cared. If he didn't care, he could just let them be consumed. And he didn't do that. He raised up judges who brought deliverance. The main responsibility of the judge was to refocus their attention on serving God while rallying the armies of Israel together to defeat the enemy. He raised them up to bring deliverance. God is still a God who delivers. He is still a God who delivers from sin. He is a God who delivers from those, from the enemy's clutches and from the power of sin. God is able to deliver you. He is able to deliver your friends. He's able to deliver your coworkers. Don't look at their mess that they're in and say, God can't do that. Oh no, God can do anything. God is able to deliver anybody from the mess and the mire that they're in. There isn't anything that God isn't able to do. He is able to deliver. When Israel defeated the armies that were often more powerful than them and they were outnumbered, it showed God was interested. You remember Gideon? He reduced his army from 32,000 to 300 men to go out against what the Bible calls the, a multitude as big as the sand of the sea. God doesn't even, he didn't even, you know, he didn't even uh, uh, bother to number how many the Midianites were, but he reduced them to 300. They were outnumbered. The army was greater, and yet God was able to do something through that small group of people. Oh, I love that. God is able to do something through us. No matter who we might think, well, you know what? I'm a nobody in this world. What, what good can my voice do? I want you to know your voice can shout louder than anybody else. Your voice is able to be heard because God is on your side. When you look out at somebody who is hopeless. I love the fact Peter and John, you know, sometimes say, Pastor, how come we don't, you know, we don't hand out money to, to people who are hopeless and homeless. One, we don't have it to hand out. And we've got to learn to depend on 
the fact that when Peter and John went up to, to the temple to pray, I remember in, in, in Acts chapter 3, as they went up to the temple to pray, there was a man who was, who was lame from birth, and he was begging for money. The church today would say, you've got to throw more money at the guy. He needs more money. Peter and John went up to him and said, silver and gold we don't have. That's the last thing anybody who doesn't have money wants to hear. I ain't got money. Fine. Later. But he said, what we do have, if we don't have it to give, brothers and sisters, we're not going to be able to give it. This is why as a church we've got to pray all the more. We've got to believe God for His grace and His power upon us as a congregation. We might not be able to have it to give out, but we've got to have it to give out. We've got to have the power of God to be able to reach down into the mess of somebody's life and say, I don't have silver and gold, but what I do have, I'm going to give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. Let there be a change. Let there be deliverance. You don't have to sit by this gate and beg anymore. You don't have to live that kind of life anymore. But you can have deliverance through my, my, my grace and my power. We've got to pray. We've got our work cut out for us, folks. As a church, we've got to believe God that He's going to use us to bring deliverance to our current generation. A generation that is lost, but I believe a generation that is not hopeless. There are those who will stand up and say, well, you know, because you evolved from something, you really have no purpose. And that is the message of evolution. The message of evolution cannot provide a purpose for existence. It cannot provide the answer for why you are here. It can't. Those who are atheists, they'll preach a message of hopelessness. The universe doesn't have any, any purpose. They'll say that. But, you know, their message is nothing more than the state of their own hopeless heart. Our message ought to be a reflection of the state of our hope-filled heart that has been filled with hope by what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. Brothers and sisters, I believe with all my heart that what God is calling us to do is He's calling us to bring hope to a lost generation. He's calling us to bring hope to those young people who are hurting and down and out. And they're looking around and they're not seeing anybody else around them that can provide any substantial kind of hope. Brothers and sisters, we've got to point to the cross. We've got to point to Jesus and recognize that God is able to bring hope to a hopeless heart and it's through him and him alone I want us to stand together right now and we are going to pray